On this episode, we'll continue our discussion on expedited drug approvals and the issues around this process. Welcome to Modern Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Tom Villanueva, Senior Principal for Operations and Quality of Vision and Practicing Internist. Joining me today is Dr. Jenny Hayes, Pharmacy Executive 3 at Vizion, and Dr. Stephen Lucio, Senior Principal for Pharmacy Solutions at Vizion. Jenny, Stephen, welcome back. Hey, Tom. Great to see you again. Tom, thanks as always. So let's do a quick recap here. In the last episode, we examined the pathways the FDA uses for expedited drug approval, and we focused on one or two particularly, which was the EUAs and also accelerated approval. So can you give us a recap of what's the difference between other pathways as well? Sure. The high-level overview, the FDA has several different pathways to expedite drugs to the commercial market. So designations like fast track, breakthrough therapy, and priority review are really dictating how quickly the FDA responds to applications that have been submitted. Accelerated approval allows the manufacturer to conduct their clinical trials using a surrogate endpoint or something that is likely to predict the patient's full response to therapy. And then in light of the COVID pandemic and some previous infectious diseases concerns, emergency use authorization is also helping getting medications that are still in development to the patients while we, you know, finalize our clinical trials. Can you give us an example of accelerated approval drugs? Sure. I think probably the most controversial accelerated approval drug lately is Aduhelm, a monoclonal antibody for the treatment of Alzheimer's. There has been a lot of discussions about how this drug was studied. Should the FDA have approved it? How much money have we spent on it already to the point where FDA and Congress actually did an entire investigation into the approval process? Absolutely agree. And like Jenny had mentioned before, so many of these medications are for these very difficult to treat disease states like Alzheimer's or oncology circumstances. And that makes it very difficult because when we're talking about unmet needs, there is such a desire to have treatments. And so we want to believe that these surrogate markers work and that they tell us the truth and we can rely on them. And unfortunately, That's not always the case. And even more unfortunately, a lot of times we just really don't know. Even though there are expectations that after you get an accelerated approval that you as a manufacturer, based upon requirements from FDA, will ultimately conduct a study that does give conformatory evidence, positive or negative, that doesn't always occur or it doesn't occur in a timely fashion. So you're waiting years and maybe decades to have the answer as to did that drug actually work? Did it affect you know, overall survival or something more specific than a surrogate marker? And a lot of times that doesn't happen. There was a study a few years ago where they looked at over 90 cancer drug indications that were accelerated approval And only about a fifth of them were ultimately demonstrated to improve overall patient survival. And it wasn't that all the others were negative. It's just a lot of them we didn't know. Those tests have not been done to date. And that's really one of the salient points that providers, physicians, prescribers need to take into consideration. Just because something looks great at the start, that may not actually pan out. And the even worse thing is that we may never actually know. And that's why there have been a lot of calls to FDA to try and improve the way in which this program is implemented. Stephen, that's a really good point about letting prescribers know. Some of the latest 
publications show that it's actually a coin flip. Only about 50% of accelerated approvals are converted to a full FDA approval based on these confirmatory studies. So the other 50% either don't work, we don't know, they can't enroll enough patients to finish the trial. So on one hand, it's great that we're getting these accelerated approvals. Patients do have more access to drugs in 2023 than ever before. But on the flip side is that these drugs may not actually provide that benefit for them. And a lot of them come with really high price tags. Yeah, I noticed that. And I'm also getting the impression that there's more drugs than ever going through this accelerated process for us that it's traditional. It's actually sobering, 50%. Yeah, more than 50% of approvals go through the accelerated approval pathway. And of those, only 50% actually get full approval based on these definitive clinical benefit studies. And not for us to just delve down into the sadness and all the challenges with healthcare, but there is another analysis done a few years ago that looked at spending for Medicare Parts B and D, and we know how much of a concern that is, spending for CMS. And they did analysis for 10 cancer drug indications that had previously been approved as accelerated approval, where there was already a confirmed lack of overall survival benefit after accelerated approval. So we actually had data yet Medicare still spent almost $600 million between 2017 and 2019. So like Judy was saying, it's just so hard to keep track of this and know when data are available and when they're not, when something is proven to be effective, when it's not. It's just very hard for the clinician to maintain awareness and in our desire and limited time to take care of patients. We can miss these things and in effect, we may not be doing the best that is there for a patient, and we may be incurring a lot of expense. Stephen, I see your $600 million, and I'll raise you by double. So another publication at the end of last year looked at 36 drugs approved under accelerated approval without any clinical benefit, $1.2 billion in Medicare spending in 2019, and $209 million of out-of-pocket costs for these Medicare beneficiaries. So not only is it affecting our payers, our government, but it's also affecting our patients who are paying out-of-pocket quite a bit for these medications that ultimately may not help their disease state. Jenny, you're absolutely right. And then one more thing I will say, Tom, we don't want to come across as we're here to criticize unnecessarily the pharmaceutical industry you know, because they invest a lot of money, like that Agihelm drug that we were talking about. That manufacturer spent $1.3 billion to make that drug that has come to market and has had almost no uptake. That's a waste of resources. That's a waste of the FDA's time. And doing all of these trials or providing the development for these medications, and then they don't work, we've got to find out ways to limit that because we are so constrained in terms of expense and we want investment and we want the development to continue, but we've got to find ways to get to correct answers more rapidly and try and, and improve the overall system so it is delivering true innovation that really does help patients and does put us in a prolonged state where we really don't know if there is any benefit to a medication being utilized. Could this also be a strategy using accelerator approval as a strategy to increase revenue? 
Well, again, I think our legal counsel would say we're not going to delve down too much into that. Again, it's a strategy to meet unmet needs. And drug companies, they make profits to make medication. So that's definitely there. And so, yes, obviously those things are a consideration, but the reality is that this isn't working and many people have questioned it. And even after the point Jenny was making earlier, Edgehelm, a lot of the individuals from the advisory committee that support FDA resigned because they just felt that the applicability of that process was not utilized. And there've been ongoing criticisms. And again, FDA is constrained. We understand it, that there are reasons why this takes place, but this is what we have to collectively improve because we can't have this waste in the system and this expense. To Jenny's point, the out-of-pocket expense, well, okay, that didn't work out, so we're going to charge for the next drug that does work out. We'll charge even more. But what about, again, the payers that had to pay for that? Are they ever reimbursed? And then most importantly, are the patients who paid for that? Where's their reimbursement? Where's their compensation for the expense for medication that didn't work? And Tom, I do want to really bring it back to the patient as well as one thing we shouldn't overlook. A lot of these accelerated approvals, especially in the oncology space, are for third line, fourth line, patients who have failed all of the other therapies, and they're really left with not much else besides these drugs that have some evidence, but maybe not as much as we would hope. And my mom is a newly Medicare-eligible beneficiary, and you better believe if she had fourth line, relapsed and refractory multiple myeloma, we'd figure out a way to pay for her copay for one of these medications with the hopes that it would provide some additional quality of life and extended survival. So what are some additional summaries that you guys have in reference to that we need to find a better way of doing this? It's wasteful in many cases, and patients are not getting the meds that they need. Any other takeaways we need to come away or lessons learned? Thanks, Tom. I would really implore providers, pharmacists, mid-levels, however you classify yourself in the healthcare team, to look at the evidence that was used for drugs that received accelerated approval. What were the inclusion criteria? What were those patients like? What comorbidities did they have? Like, can we identify which patient subsets would benefit the most from these medications as we still continue to conduct these additional clinical trials to really understand their place in therapy. So I think trying to figure out which patients would benefit the most from these medications before we start just putting them in the water and making them eligible for all patients. Completely agree. And I think this is where, as pharmacists, Jenny and I would say that having good collaboration within your organization between your prescribers, the physicians and pharmacists to scrutinize this data, not just upon initial launch, but throughout the life cycle of a medication is critically important because yes, it may be appropriate to leverage a product that has an accelerated approval and that may ultimately translate to full approval, but it requires ongoing scrutiny. And again, given the expense associated with these products, It is critically important to the healthcare organization specifically. And then obviously, like Jenny said, the most important is for the patient. What are you getting for that investment? And that is something that we should be asking FDA and the supplier community to be able to answer. What are we getting for all of this investment that is taking place in medications? Great job, guys. Great job. This was very enlightening. Jenny, Stephen, thanks for a great discussion. And to our listeners, you can contact Jenny and Stephen at their email addresses in our resource section of our podcast page. 
And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email, modernpracticepodcast at visitinc.com. We've posted a link in our research section as well. And please join us for other Modern Practice Podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. I'm Dr. Tom Villanueva. Thank you so much for listening.